This podcast is supported by a grant from Sanofi Regeneron. Welcome to this podcast series from the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. My name is Jerry Lee, and this is our first of a three-part series on severe pediatric asthma. In this episode, we will review the challenges and the burden of disease in children with severe asthma. Joining us today are Dr. Princess Abagu and Dr. Wanda Pitokanical. Dr. Abagu is the Director of the Division of Pediatric Allergy, Immunology, and Rheumatology at University Hospitals Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Abagu completed her residency in internal medicine and her subspecialty training in allergy immunology at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Her clinical and research interests are in eosinophilic disorders and health disparities. And Dr. Pitokanical is the director of the Division of Immunology Research Center at Boston Children's Hospital and the S. Jane Amans Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She has dedicated her career in reducing and preventing asthma and allergic diseases. Dr. Pitpitanical has built a deep network of community relationships and conducts both school and home-based asthma studies in children focused on reducing disparities. Princess Wanda, thank you so much for joining us on Allergy Talk. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jerry. Okay, well, let's get started. Princess, you know, we're talking about severe pediatric asthma, but how do we define asthma as severe? What is sort of the threshold? Sure. So we define a severe asthma really as difficult to control asthma. Per the GINA guidelines, severe asthma is defined as uncontrolled despite adherence to maximal optimized therapy and treatment of contributory factors. But Really clinically and in the real world, this just means that these are the patients that we see all the time that require maximal asthma therapy. They're still symptomatic. They're still uncontrolled. We still see a lot of morbidity, a lot of ER visits, a lot of oral corticosteroid use. So these are our patients that are difficult to control and are not doing well with their asthma. We see this more likely in adults, but you can see it in children as well. So when you talk about maximal medical therapy, like what would be Gina consider like maximal asthma therapy? So Gina considers step four and step five to be maximal medical therapy. So these are generally our patients who are on inhaled corticosteroids with long-acting beta agonists who may also be on other therapies like leukotriene receptor antagonists. They may be on biologics or on their way to being on biologics, which we'll talk about later. But essentially the patients that are on daily therapies and still having exacerbations. We see a lot of those patients on step four and step five therapy, but we see a selected population didn't refer to us. So Wanda, overall, how many children have severe asthma and meet these criteria? I would say that most of asthma is not really labeled severe or difficult to control asthma, uh, but it affects about 5% of the children that do have asthma are kind of labeled severe or difficult to control but it really takes the majority of the burden and morbidity related to the disease. In fact, some of the studies have identified that the cost that we spend on controlling or trying to help children with asthma really is made up about 50% of the costs are from this 5% of patients with severe asthma. It really causes a lot of morbidity, greatly impacts those who are affected and really causes tremendous burden and costs to our healthcare system. It's also an area which I think Princess will talk quite a bit more about, 
in that it's an area where there's a lot of disparities, really significant disparities among patients that are less fortunate. And so that, that is also something to really think about as well in severe asthma. Yeah. So Princess, I want to talk about disparities in those who are affected with severe asthma. What do we know about who is most at risk for developing severe asthma? Sure, Jerry. So overall, we know that asthma prevalence has increased in all patients since the early 1980s. So this is similar to other atopic disorders that we see increase in prevalence. And this is irrespective of age, sex, and racial group. But when we think about morbidity, such as hospitalizations, ED visits, these are much higher in underserved populations. We know that there's a higher prevalence when the income level is below the poverty level. We know that there's contribution from environment. And Wanda will talk more about this, but we know that in areas where we have historic redlining, where we have poor housing, where we have less access to green space, increased air pollution, more pests, especially the indoor pests, we have a higher asthma morbidity, and this tends to be disproportionately in underserved populations. When we think about the children involved, Jerry, we know that Black children are three times more likely than other children to be hospitalized for their asthma, and they have an eight times greater risk of death compared to their peers. So it really is a really disproportionately affected population. They may be less likely to have control or medications less likely to be referred to specialists like ourselves in the first place. And when you're less likely to be referred to specialists, you may be less likely to have access to more precision medicine treatments, which we'll talk about. You know, President, I'm worried that some of our audience may not be familiar with sort of the history of redlining. Do you think you could explain that to the audience? Sure. So redlining is something that has historically happened in the United States with respect to housing and ability to get mortgages. And historically, some neighborhoods, predominantly those that were African-American, were ranked to be most risky for government loans. They weren't included in lending programs. And we think that this is all part of structural racism or that concept that there are some forms of discrimination that are really embedded in society through law. Some of these may contribute to environmental exposures that have been ongoing for decades. So it really sounds like it's mainly a social economic background that has sort of led to this disparity between uh, different groups in us. Yes. So one of when we see a child with severe asthma, uh, what is the consequences on their life? What is the burden disease on a child with severe asthma? When we see patients with severe asthma, their quality of life is really poor and they suffer from daily symptoms. It really impacts their morbidity, the way they function, the way they live. And uh, these children just, they have a difficult time keeping up with their peers. A lot of times the complaints to me come that they can't run and do the things that all the other kids that their age can do. And it's a significant problem. The other thing I find is asthma, uh, definitely prior to the pandemic, and now that we were kind of back to where we were before, asthma is the number one cause of school absences in America. And when kids don't go to school and when kids are not breathing well, they don't learn. And many of these schools and communities have a high proportion of minority children that were as disproportionately affects, particularly the African-American and Hispanic populations as well. So it is tremendous, the, some of the impact that can come with the 
exacerbations and using lots of medications. There are a lot of negative health effects that come from using frequent systemic corticosteroids and high doses of corticosteroids that can have just long lasting impact. And we've also identified that these exacerbations really trigger the disease for long-term outcomes. In other words, lung function gradually declines in in these children as well. It's really an area that is something that needs to be addressed as far as controlling uncontrolled severe asthma in children. Yeah, actually, I liked, wanted to ask you a question about that. When I was a fellow, I it was sort of drilled into me that a lot of the decrease of lung function that occurs in pediatric asthma is not really intervenable in the sense that the CAMP study showing that children who were taking inhaled steroid did not seem to have any change in their decline of lung function. Is there any update on how we can intervene in preserving lung function in children? Well, the world of asthma has changed markedly since the time frame that you're talking about way back then. And we have a lot more strategies to reduce exacerbations. And it's been clearly demonstrated that if you can reduce the frequency of exacerbations, and children tend to exacerbate a lot, you can really affect and slow down that decline in lung function. And now with many of the immune-based therapies and biologics that are so amazingly effective in reducing exacerbations, I think that is now the case that we can intervene. We're also thinking and maybe considering even in children, you have the opportunity for even early intervention. So I'm doing a study that's called the PARC study. It's funded by the NIH where we are using anti-IgE or omalizumab in young children that are really at high risk when they're that two to three year range, when they're starting to develop disease, they have to be significant enough to give a biologic, right? You're not going to treat babies who have no disease, but considering that you maybe could modify or alter or even prevent the allergic atopic march and by reducing these immune processes, exacerbations, you could maybe prevent the decline in lung function, prevent lasting severe asthma later on in life. So these are some concepts that are being studied and evaluated and are very important and very exciting to think that we can make a difference. Oh, that's great. And it obviously gives us relief that we actually can't do something about severe asthma. But I guess to be quite honest with you, I remember the same conversations we had about severe asthma when I was in training that we're having now that still a large burden of disease for children, children getting hospitalized, a lot of the problems that we're talking about now, children had for decades. And so, Princess, we'll start with you. Like, why do you think we've not been able to move the needle on severe pediatric asthma? I think something that we're all so passionate about wanting to change, and it's for all the reasons that you've heard so far, that a lot of these children that have this really significant morbidity from asthma are also living in areas where they have very little control over the environment. We're really talking about here are the social determinants of health challenges that really impact all of medicine and really are the barrier to health equity for a lot of our patients. And so although we've had this amazing progress in our ability to diagnose and our ability to treat. And even what Wanda mentioned, this 
ability to have this early intervention, I think that having some of these social determinants of health challenges really have not gone away. And as a profession, we have not been as adept at dealing with them and integrating these social factors really into the way that we address medical problems and help patients move forward. And this is something that I think is going to need to happen to really hone in on precision medicine for patients. I think some of the other issues are that parents have concerns about medications that are new and their parental concerns about steroids, but there are also, to some extent, parental concerns about some of the newer medications because they don't have the lengthy history of use that we've had with inhalers, which parents do tend to rely on quite a bit. And so this is where a lot of the education comes in, trust building, shared decision making. And then in general, when we're talking about these underserved populations of children, they're less likely to be enrolled in clinical trials for a variety of reasons, some due to age and availability of trials. There are not as many trial availability for severe asthma for pediatric patients, but there is just an inherent issue with diversity in clinical trials across the board, and this is a much more layered issue that has to do with trust. It has to do with a lot of other factors. And so these all really play a role collectively in terms of how we approach research, in terms of how we're dealing with the social concerns for patients that affect our ability to move the needle for our patients with severe pediatric asthma. Yeah, Wano, what is your thoughts? Why do you think we've not really progressed as much as we'd like? Yeah, I think that Princess brought up a lot of the key factors. There are these social determinants of health that affect kids just based on where they live and grow, and it can negatively impact their outcomes. The access to specialists, the access to the education of the new therapies that are available is a significant challenge. And then educating the families, there is always concern about therapies. What is the long-term effects of some of these therapies? People are nervous about steroids, There are now many patients really qualify and could benefit from immune-based biologic therapy that not only help asthma, but maybe helps a lot of the other allergic diseases they have, but the families are very concerned. They don't know what this is. They don't understand what they are, but these are available for their child. And I guess one of the other big things has been the challenge with adherence. Because of all the concern of these therapies, of steroids, then families are nervous about using medications in the way that they are prescribed. So that also is a significant challenge. And as far as clinical trials, I think Princess did nail it. It, Having done studies in both, as an allergist we see across the age ranges, it's much more difficult to get objective data in children on what really helps and does not help them. They're not just little adults. You are also recruiting the parent, you're recruiting the family. Parents are much more nervous about enrolling into clinical trials. And then the diversity is also a significant challenge. I am actually doing now an NIH funded study. It's called the IDEA study, where we are actually recruiting 
all comers, but we're focused on a genotype that is much more common in minority populations. It's more common in African-Americans and Hispanics. It's on the IL-4 receptor, and it is associated with really, really bad asthma, very difficult, severe asthma, and very difficult disease. And what we're trying to do is through this endotype, see if we can have more like Princess Menson, a precision-based approach. We're like, if a patient comes in and has this genotype, even if you are not minority, if you have this genotype, your progression of disease is much more significant. And so maybe that may help point us to certain therapies where we know this will be first line. This is a study we're looking at the effect of dupilumab in this kind of genotype stratified approach. But that is another area that I think really having precision-based therapies based on how the patient presents from a phenotypic point and an endotypic point is also important as well. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a lot of challenges we need to address, not only, again, identify the type of asthma children have and do precision therapy, but also addressing their environment and their social determinants. And as well as once we even identified how to intervene, how best to execute it in terms of education and so on. So I think those are wonderful discussion. I appreciate both of you sharing your expertise. I think in the next two episodes, we're going to sort of do a deeper dive into those. So that concludes part one of our three-part series on severe pediatric asthma from the ACAAI. Please be sure to join us as we talk about these issues in depth in terms of evaluation in episode two and treatment in episode three. Now, if you'd like any resources, we are setting up a website. It's education.acaai.org slash asthma, And that's going to give us some references and some ways that you can address some of these issues. And please, after listening to this podcast, please send us feedback. The email is algaetalk, one word, at acaai.org. We appreciate your feedback, as well as if you like what you hear, please rate our podcast on iTunes. And of course, if you have any other interests in other episodes, just please go to our website. That's college.acaai.org slash algaetalk. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm speaking for the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.